Proctorius and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Closure Day has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available. And you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for WildConf. For more information and register, visit www.closured.de. And the day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, the goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the range. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-E-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Craig Dave Thomas and Saucer Urch. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze dot com, to keep updated for information and to register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Alexa Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. This factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. Early World tickets are on sale through February 26th. To keep updated with information, visit www.erling-factory.com slash sfbay2017. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be taking place April 2nd through the 5th of 2017 in New York. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the professional training event that's not just for software architects, but for any engineer, programmer, developer, or team leader who does part of an architect's job. You'll get coverage from the most important topics of the day, from highly respected expert leading sessions, hands-on tutorials, and in-depth professional training. If your job involves architecting and defining systems, evaluating tools and technologies, leading teams or mentoring others, and collaborating with system stakeholders, you'll want to be there. Save 20% with discount code USRG. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50017. FlatMap Oslo call for presentations is open through March 1st. FlatMap Oslo is an FP conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash CFP to learn more. And announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at FlatMap Oslo. Elixir Confee will be taking place May 4th and 5th with the Tutorials Day on May 3rd. ElixirConf.eu is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Erlang, Elixir, and Ruby communities. Early bird tickets are available until March 18th. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack in all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do, and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open, and you can save 20% on most passes with the code USRG. 
For more information and register, visit www.orelli.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zablicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and early bird tickets are currently available, but there's no telling how long they will last. For more information and to register, and to submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP will open Monday, March 13th, and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration will open March 21st. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Trisha G. Trisha, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure, no problem. I am a, a developer advocate for JetBrains, working mostly with IntelliJ IDEA and Upsource. So a lot of what I talk about is Java type stuff and also sort of coding standards, clean code and design and things like that. I came across you from Lambda Days, maybe one of the conferences. Mm-hmm. You had a talk about bringing functional programming into Java. So you're not necessarily a functional programmer from the perspective of I'm in Clojure or Haskell or something you think of functional programming. You're a functional programmer in the fact of I've got the language that I use. I do like the functional features. I pull those in and try and be an advocate for that. So right. correct me where I'm wrong. You're Java. And how did you get into software? And let's lead up to where you got to today a little bit. Okay. It's obviously a long story. I'll try and keep it shortish. So I started programming in like in basic when I was about nine or 10, as you do. And I really liked it. And then I sort of forgot about coding for most of my teens. And then when I was in sixth form in the UK, so 16 through 18, I was studying maths, computing and physics. And I kind of I wanted to be an astrophysicist, actually. I wanted to travel to Mars and I was really into science fiction at the time. And it turned out that actually I much preferred the programming and the computing side of stuff to the maths and the physics side of stuff. It turns out that rocket science has got loads of maths in and <laughs> and programming is just much more fun in my personal opinion. So I ended up doing a computer science degree and there we were the first year to study Java. So I'm not sure whether that dates me well or not, but <laughs> I was studying Java in the late 90s. And when I came out of university, just after the dot-com crash, there was quite a lot of interest in Java as a language from the enterprises in the sort of London area because they were just starting to experiment with things like open source and sort of free software. And Java was at that time the sort of trendy language to do that in. So I was quite fortunate in being trained up in Java with my computer science degree at a time when people were looking for low cost programming solutions, which was the Java sort of space. And I've kind of sort of stayed there ever since for the last, what's that, 16, 17 years or so. 
um, stayed there. I mean, it's, it's not a stagnant world, of course, and things have changed a lot since then. But I've been predominantly Java for the last nearly 20 years. So you're in the Java world. And in a lot of these languages that can be associated as enterprisey, there can be the side that does the stagnation. And we're still on the same tools and stuff that we have been for the past 10, 15, 20 years, just because we've got this big framework, we've got this big company that's on this infrastructure, and we can't just go change that and fold stuff in willy-nilly. Were you hopping around companies? Were you just mainly in the same group? How did you prevent from being stagnated? I hopped around a lot of companies. I, I get bored pretty easily. I think my average time at companies up until now has probably been about 18 months, two years. Well, I worked at Ford Motor Company for quite a long time, but they rotate you between projects. So I got a lot of experience both on the sort of website, a lot of experience in terms of back-end traditional enterprise applications, if you like. And I did some Microsoft stuff there as well because they were originally sort of microsoft shop before they moved to Java. But I also worked as a consultant too. So being a consultant means you get to jump from company to company and from project to project. And that was really cool because I got to see a lot of stuff inside financial markets, inside the banks in London. And that's kind of, I guess, in my mind, that's what I think of when I think about these typical enterprise shops. And they kind of, the banks are very interesting because they have this tension between trying to utilize technologies which are going to give them speed and a competitive advantage and so forth. But also, it's very important for them to have stability, of course, because they're talking about dealing with other people's money. So this is not uncommon across enterprises. It just seems to be, in my experience, much more pronounced inside the banks because they have a very big tension between adopting new technologies to get better speed or to get better access to data or whatever, and trying not to mess anything up when it comes to you know millions of pounds worth of money. So yes, yeah, so I have a sort of wide range of experience with these different types of companies. I've also worked for not-for-profit organizations and some smaller startups. I worked for a financial exchange in London, which was really, really interesting. There we were doing lots of continuous delivery stuff. We were doing agile, pair programming, all in Java, including the front end. We were using GWT for the front end. So even our web front end was written in Java. And that was really interesting because that's the first place I've worked where I really felt like, for a start, I was really using my computer science degree because we were caring about algorithmic complexity and we cared about performance, obviously, and we cared about clean code as well because we really cared about making it maintainable because we're quite a small team and it was important for us to be able to look at the code and understand what it's doing so that we can change it more easily. And that was, I think, for me, a big eye-opening opportunity to sort of see what software development in the Java world can be like if you really sort of turn the knobs up to 11, if you like. And coming from a .NET background myself, I know the clean code and the like, and a lot of these patterns and principles kind of cross-pollinated back and forth with the .NET and the Java communities and went back and forth. And a lot of this kind of stuff that you sounds like you were probably realizing of how to write maintainable code. And you start getting some of these realizations. Were there any things in particular that you knew jumped out to you about designing software well? And I'm wondering if what's up the background for whatever exposed you to functional programming kind of helps set right. that foundation for saying, oh, I see how these things align and these things work really well together. So I think there was lots of things I learned in that particular role, and it's kind of difficult to pinpoint stuff. But one of the things that really sticks with me is that writing small methods, keeping your code very focused, keeping it very descriptive, being able to change method names and things on the fly without worrying about, oh, someone 
had in their head, you know, someone owned this code and it's kind of, it's kind of set in stone. The ability to move stuff quite quickly, the ability to keep stuff in small, self-contained, self-descriptive modules. I'm talking about maybe method level, class level stuff. That is not only more maintainable and easier to read, but it actually turns out, particularly for the JVM, that's more performant too. So if you've got these small methods, the JVM and to some extent the CPU can predict what's happening in the code and can therefore optimize your code for you. So you don't have to write complex code to write fast code. So that was kind of my first step on that journey. So that was a few years ago. And over that time, you're talking about the cross-pollination stuff. Next up, I worked for MongoDB and the team there was the team that supported the C-sharp driver and the team that supported the Java driver. We were part of the same team. So we got to cross-pollinate a lot of ideas, including like C-sharp had a lot of things that we didn't have. Like we didn't have Lambda expressions. We didn't have, well, a lot of things that C-sharp has, which was I could really see the impact on our Java code that we couldn't do, we couldn't use the same paradigms and idioms that they could use. For example, the ability to pass behavior around in Lambda expressions. And I saw, having been a Java person for so long, I hadn't really missed that functionality because we never had it. And then when you start to work with other people with other languages, the wider team also included all the other languages, JavaScript and PHP and Perl and Python and Ruby. And you work with all these people who are doing things in a slightly different way, and you realize that your language can't do this, you sort of think, oh, right, well, we've been kind of working around the fact that the language doesn't support certain things. And so when Java 8 came out and I started working at JetBrains, I really wanted to look into the Java 8 features, the Lambda expressions, the Streams API, so this kind of MapReduce type functionality which came into Java 8 to sort of see... Not only, you know, what have we been missing, but to try and bring that back to other developers and say, look, all these features that we don't really get because we haven't really used them, this is how you use them and this is what's great about them and this is the stuff that you couldn't do before or you could do before in a in a long-winded way, you can do in a much shorter, more readable, more pleasant way using Java 8 features. And you mentioned the things like the small methods seeing the lambdas and how you can pass that stuff around and not have to pass around a whole class that you create based off an interface just to be able to have an object that you can pass that's some sort of command object just because you want something that's a method and you can't pass it around. Right. Were those obvious as you started doing this or was there just kind of a, that's weird, that's crazy? Or did you kind of have enough scars that you essentially, when you saw it, you're like, that. I think a sort of a mix of those things. As you get doing these, as you start to use the new idioms, as you start to use the Java 8 features in particular, some things are obvious and some things take that mental leap. So the obvious things, for example, where we used anonymous inner types before, you can use a Lambda expression. And the syntax is kind of weird, but you just basically are stripping away all the class declaration, all the method declaration, and most of the types. And it feels a little bit naked to a Java programmer. But ultimately, it's the same thing. So it's kind of easy-ish to get your head around, well, instead of using an anonymous inner type, which we didn't use very much, but we understand that concept. Instead of using that, we just strip away all the boilerplate that was getting in the way anyway and just pass around the behavior. And that's kind of fairly easy, I think, for most Java programmers to get their heads around. What I particularly found a little bit difficult was the MapReduce type way of working We've used sort of fluent DSLs before and builder patterns, and that's kind of fine, which is what the Streams API looks like. But processing large chunks of data by writing sort of a query in Java 
we don't really do that. So this idea of having a streams API where you say, for example, collection dot filter for this criteria dot distinct dot sorted dot map, particularly the map operation, I found that a bit difficult to get my head around. And what I quite often would do is I would write a for loop with an if statement inside, sort of do it the old fashioned way to see how I'd kind of sketch out in the old Java way and then get my IDE to convert that into a stream operation. So I get the idea of what these stream operations really mean, sort of what they're doing under the covers. And I found my IDE really useful for helping me to make the transition from the old way of thinking to the newer way of thinking. Was that the IDE? Because I don't know if these things just did a one jump across many steps, or was there something that the IDE kind of led you down the refactoring route that says, well, if you do this, and then if you do this, and if you do this, you can essentially refactor your loop out into a map. What was that looking like as you were kind of leaning on the IDE to help get some of these ideas? So the IDE, so I'm using IntelliJ IDEA. I mean, I do work for JetBrains and we do make IntelliJ IDEA just to get that upfront. So I'm not trying to advertising IntelliJ. I'm just talking about it from a Java developer point of view. What I found useful, firstly, in the initial days of using Java 8 with the older versions of IntelliJ, it would show you places where anonymous inner classes can be replaced with Lambda expressions and just do that for you. So that's quite a nice, quick transition. The Streams API stuff, it would take simple for loops, perhaps a for loop with a nested if statement, and it would say, this can be a stream operation with a filter and a for each. And your brain goes, oh, okay, I can kind of see that. The for loop is mapping into this for each operation, and the if statement becomes a filter. Okay. But as IntelliJ has got a bit more, um, with every release, it gets a bit smarter, certainly around the Java 8 features, because we use it ourselves to develop IntelliJ. So we find things that we would like to be able to do as developers. It gets much, much smarter, and it can look at some of these really complex edge cases and say, this just collapses down into this stream operation. Now, that's kind of useful in terms of, oh, I don't need to worry about it anymore. Here's this magic stream incantation that does the same thing. But what my talks this year have been, well, sorry, last year, I suppose, 2016, have been about, have been around not just taking the magic that ID tells you to do, because you don't understand things if you just say, okay, magically turn it into something better. But trying to look at the old code versus the new code and trying to get developers to think about, well, if you see code that looks like this with this sort of shape for loop or with this type of if, or this type of break out of when you found a particular operation, that's a find first. Trying to get developers to sort of make these mental models between what they would normally do, where you see patterns of code, like if it's null, do this. If it's not null, do that. Well, nowadays, this would convert into an operation which looks like this. And that's kind of, so the IDE can do that for you, but we as developers, we need to be thinking about, well, what does that really mean? Is there a way that I can be embracing this to just write it correctly the first time around. And as you're making this transition, did you realize that you were starting to take advantage of functional programming? Or was that something that later someone kind of came and said, this is what we're doing. This is where it is. There's a whole background, a whole nother track that diverged that's feeding slowly back into these languages. Yes. I mean, obviously, a lot of the other JVM languages that are built on top of Java have been trying to do some of these things, provide that kind of syntax without there being the underlying support for it. And a lot of these other languages like Scala and so forth were saying, oh, yeah, well, look, this is now some of these functional ideas that we've put into our JVM languages being embraced by Java the language. 
And so there was awareness of the fact that these were functional concepts. But I think what I've been trying to do, I mean, if I'm talking at a functional conference, then obviously I'm going to talk about how this is a more functional style of coding. If I'm talking to Java developers, which is mostly what I do, I try not to make those comparisons because if you're used to working in Java, if you haven't worked with a functional language or another language which embraces some of these functional idioms, then the idea of trying to become more functional is, I'm not going to say scary because it's not that terrifying, but it's it implies a, a big step change in the way that you're thinking. And I don't want developers to sort of think that way because it's not, it's an incremental thing. There's just a few more nice bits of syntax that we happen to use, for example, Lambda expressions. There's some nice APIs that give us some functionality we didn't have before, like the Streams API. So developers don't have to know that it's embracing functional type techniques. And if you start thinking about it in terms of Java becoming a functional language, for example, um, there's obviously enormous holes there that are not plugged because it's not a functional language. It just borrows some of these functional ideas. For example, immutability is now good. We know that. Something that a lot of the functional languages have been saying for ages, it's important to do that. So I think that there are lots of people, certainly at the sort of bleeding and leading edge of the Java community, who are talking about this being a functional style, embracing functional idioms and so forth. But I think for most Java developers, they don't need to know that to sort of get the most out of it. And I don't want to put people off by, I don't want people to sort of think, oh, now I have to learn functional when I was doing object-oriented before, even though those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. And it's a lot of those reasons that I like to get other languages on as well that aren't necessarily considered functional because there could be a number of people out there that are in the situation kind of like you. All their coworkers are and object-oriented. They may not be thinking functional. They may be intimidated by this and some of that approach to bringing it out. And it seems like that, as you said, they're not mutually exclusive. A lot of these ideas are foundational and they still hold true. And as you start bringing these things through, when you start introducing some of these to people, where do you start? Which part of this stuff do you start? Do you give a recap of, these are good ideas and object-oriented and we've all felt the pain of mutable thing and we want value objects? What's the thing that you start with when you start leaning in and helping to show these ideas? I kind of start from the other end. I think this is one of the, I'm going to say failure cases of functional programming. That's that's not really what I mean. When a lot of people talk about functional programming, they do come at it from a sort of, this is what functional means. This is not really academic, but here's some theory around it. And this is when you use it. And that works well for a certain set of developers. But for a lot of developers who are under time pressure to deliver something or who are working with a legacy code base where they feel like they don't have the freedom to embrace new stuff, they don't really feel the urge to learn in that kind of way. So the way that I like to come at it is literally showing code. So not just, oh, here is a Lambda expression, but look, this is a problem I'm trying to solve. I'm trying to pass a piece of behavior from one thread to another. This is something that we always feel the pain of with Java. You know, if you've got a UI thread and some sort of data processing thread, you don't want to block the UI thread and you don't want to touch the UI stuff from the data processing thing because you're going to get a collision. So how do I pass that behavior from one thread to another? Well, look, here's a Lambda expression and this is what it does. And this is the problem that it solves. So if you come at it from a, this is the problem it's trying to solve. These new tools are available to you to solve problems that you have definitely come across in the past and will in the future. 
that allows them, I think, to embrace these ideas without being put off by having to learn an entirely new programming paradigm. So a lot, a lot of the stuff I do is live coding with a non-trivial example. Look, this is kind of what we're trying to achieve. This is when you'd use one of these. I'm using this in this case because, look, it's much more succinct than doing it the old-fashioned way. And look, I can do this with this new API, which we wouldn't have known how to do before. And you mentioned the passing context around between different threads. That's kind of the thing I was getting at. As you find this, what are those patterns and other examples? Is it just people are rewriting for loops and you're just saying, you've got this for loop with an if in here, and that's all you're doing is you're taking from one array, putting it into another if this condition exists and only if this condition exists. And you've got that for loop because you've done your little single responsibility principle. You want the small method, and that's just doing this. This is essentially a filter. What are those things that you see recurring that are the things that people jump at and start to latch on first? That when we say, here's how you solve problems, for other people coming in and trying to make these cases, what have you found works best? What are those kinds of domains that are the easy wins and the low-hanging fruit to start with? So I think there's a few different things. And I think it probably depends a bit on the team and how flexible people are to changing bits of their code base. There are some areas where you can just apply new idioms straight away. Like I said, anonymous inner classes can just be straight replaced with Lambda expressions with no real worry about there being a change in any sort of behavior or a change in performance. That's a pretty much straightforward, easy win. Similarly, for some of the for loops, you can map them to streams operations it can have a potential performance implication. So it's not really something that's a sort of quick and easy win to do willy-nilly. And I think that when you're starting to talk about changing code that looks quite different, like a, a complicated for loop with a couple of nested if statements into a, a streams API, and they don't look the same and you can't think about them the same way, that becomes a little bit more tricky to sell as a sort of refactoring, if you like. You can do that if you have all the right automated tests in place to make sure that you haven't changed anything. So some things are quick wins like the Lambda expressions. What I kind of really like, though, are some of the places where Java 8 will give you, Java 8 specifically, will give you things that you couldn't do before or were kind of more difficult to reason around before. So I quite like optional. Optional is kind of, it's not, quite there yet because other languages have kind of better support for declaring whether something is allowed to be null or not and how you check that. Of course, Java has this 20-year history and you can't sort of rewrite the internals to just start worrying about how you represent nulls. But the idea of APIs being able to return an optional to explicitly state this might return something or it might not, I think that's really interesting and very compelling for people who are who are writing APIs. And if we're talking about microservices, which a lot of people are writing these days, and certainly thinking in terms of passing messages between independent services rather than just working in a big monolith, the way you design the API between those systems can be quite important. So I think the idea of optional being able to state, will this thing return something or not? I think that's quite interesting for a Java 8 selling point. But it's not something that you can easily refactor your code to do. I think this is something that you think about when you're writing new code, you're writing new APIs. So that's kind of, again, a different, it will depend upon the team, what they're working on, what their problems are. If no one ever has any problems with nulls, for example, because they're using annotations in a particular way, or they have their own process for deciding whether something is null or not, then optional won't really give them anything. 
one of the things I think is quite interesting is not just about converting existing code to do the same thing in the new way, but the ability to do stuff slightly differently. Java 8 also adds a new logging method, which takes a Lambda expression instead of a string to log. Now, that seems like a really small change, but this ability to pass around, like I said before, this ability to pass around behavior, which in this case is the recipe for creating a log message rather than the log message itself, this can actually give you quite some big performance wins because instead of building up this string, which might be a costly thing, you're passing across a Lambda expression, which you can lazily evaluate. And Lambda expressions allow you to do lazy evaluation much more easily. And that's another interesting place for this sort of functional thinking that, I, again, I think developers can kind of use that and think in a slightly different way without having to worry about, oh, this is a functional thing to do. And for clarity, because I don't know the Java experience with everybody listening, but when you're talking about passing this Lambda and making it lazy, it's you're essentially saying all this place that you're having to build up this string and this message and everything else, we're going to put this in a Lambda. And so if we're in debug mode, we run and execute that code. But if we're in production mode, very low level logging, we can pass that in, but we don't have to do that. And that's kind of the sale you're making to the Java developers then? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Most Java developers will be familiar with the fact that when you log something, whichever logging framework you're doing, you quite often have to wrap that inside an if statement. So you say, you know, if log level equals debug, then call the debug logger. And the reason for that was never really clear to me when I was a more junior developer, because I'm like, well, surely something inside the debug logger is going to do the if, but it's the performance of building up the string. That's why you wrap the if outside the method call so that you don't create the string if you don't need to. But with Lambda expressions, you can have the if inside the method. You can kind of push that away, not worry about it and have that lazy evaluation happening in the library instead of happening inside your own code. And then with the optional type, is that something that you're finding people are grasping? You're saying this is one of those things going forward. These are new features. I know a lot of people understand the ramifications of dealing with nulls, but you said Java is still coming, still growing with the optional type and thinking about we could have something in here or we could not. Is that something that's starting to be clear? Because when I saw that introduced in .NET, there was still a little bit of if of when do I use the optional? How do I get this? Do I have to do some coercion to get this out if it has a value versus not? Right. So I think to my mind, and I haven't worked on a big enterprise project which uses optional in anger, if you like, yet. But to my mind, having seen what I've seen by talking to people working for different companies, by being on the conference scene and so forth, I think optional, there will be a lot of changes to optional in Java 9. So I think optional is an idea that's still evolving. We have some sort of best practices, if you like, that's kind of roughly kicking around the Java community, which is that you use optional for return types. You don't use it for parameter types. You don't use it for fields. You don't use it for variables. So as soon as you get an optional back, you do something with it there and then, because that's the context at which you know whether you got something from that method you called or you didn't, and you know what to do about it. Should I throw an exception? Should I get the default value? Should I call a different method? So the sort of standards, if you like, the unwritten rule is you use optional for return types. You don't use it for anything else. And then when you get an optional back from calling, say, an API, maybe a different library, then you decide there and then what you do in the case that that optional was empty. And do people get it? Because I know one of the big patterns in the Java and the .NET was the null object pattern. 
And some of that pain was, well, now I got to make sure I have an interface for everything. And I create two implementations of every class. One is my person that has the full-fledged thing. And then one is my null person, which is still the same interface. I still have the same contracts, but I either no op or return blank strings or return a new something. So if I'm going to change that, it's person.address.streetNumber. Well, now I've got to go down all the way down and start creating a proliferation of these things. I know people would probably have that background, but when they see the optional, do they get it and equate it? And how does that work? I'm not sure. I mean, I, that's that pattern that you were just talking about, that's what I had in my mind that optional would replace. But it, it's not quite the same. It doesn't. It's not like a one-for-one -one conversion. The optional is just a simple wrapper. So you get back an optional of type person. And if optional is empty, then you do something else. You create, maybe you create your null person at that point in time, or maybe you go to a different interface to ask for a different sort of person, or maybe you throw a person not found exception. So it's, it's a slightly different pattern. It's still kind of used in the same places, I guess, but it, it's a different pattern. Now, I quite like the pattern of the null object because it allows you to work with that object without worrying about whether it's null or not. And it's kind of invisible to the to you as a programmer. But I haven't seen it used very much in sort of real code bases. Real code bases tend to do an awful lot of null checks. Like, is this null? Oh, it, it isn't. So I'll do something with it. If it is null, well, I'll just ignore it and carry on. And there doesn't seem to be enough regard for what that null really means. You know, what should I be doing if this is null? And I think that's what I quite like about optional is it should force the developer to think, okay, what does it mean? I didn't get a person back as a result of this query. So does that mean that the person who tried to log in doesn't exist, in which case I need to deal with it in a particular way? Or does that mean that, you know, someone needs to do a, a broader search for a different sort of person? I think it forces the developer to think about the ramifications, but that's always difficult, right? Because for a start, if you're trying to retrofit that to an existing code base, I think that's extremely difficult because you've already got assumptions about what null means throughout the whole code base. And I think trying to unpick those assumptions, if it's not well documented, not well tested, is very, very difficult. And I think that quite often, the place at which a developer gets something like an optional back, they might not know what to do if it's null, in which case they're just going to end up I don't know, working with a null or working with a null object. I don't think optional has really given us enough safety from these kinds of problems. And I'm asking because I saw that same kind of thing when the optional types were started to be introduced in .NET. And there was that debate of, well, do I just do optional for ints? Or now if I have an optional, is this, this doesn't seem to be buying me much. It seems like I just got a null and I have to do an extra check and do something else. And that's why I was wondering how this was building. Yeah. I would say it's pretty much the same thing in Java. The Java 8 optional has a number of chained methods on it. So you can do things like if present and you give it a Lambda expression, something to do if that thing exists. You can do things like dot or else or or else get or or else throw. And that's quite nice because that's quite, I think that's quite a descriptive way of saying if this thing doesn't exist. So if null, this is what you do. And it's a bit more descriptive. The Java 9 optional changes will add more of these fluent API calls to sort of let you deal with edge cases. And instead of having to do, you know, a sort of if is not empty, then do this, which is not a very functional way of doing stuff at all. So we'll get more functional style programming, I think, on optional in Java 9. But I still don't think it's quite, it doesn't seem to work quite the way that I expect it to, but I feel like I'm missing something. And in actual fact, I'm going to chat to one of the Oracle guys next time I see him at a conference. He's going to help me 
walk through some specific Java 6 code and show where the optionals would add value because that's what I really need to see. Okay. And yeah, that's exactly what I was teasing out was I didn't really even realize that in the case of Java that there were those composability options on an optional where you could say get if exists. Well, in the case of an address, get if exists the address. If not, return a nullable address kind of thing, an optional address. Right, right. So you can do that. You can say optional dot or else, and that will return a default method or a default object. Or you can say optional dot or else get and pass it a Lambda expression or a method for it to go and get something else or, or else throw, and you could throw an exception. That way of working is quite nice. But I still think the the funny thing is you can still say optional dot is present, which is a simple Boolean return, and then do optional dot get. And I'm not really sure why they even added that to the API because that kind of developers automatically fall into this non-functional, non-composable way of working with optional. And then with the lambdas, you say a lot of the stuff is showing the places where the lambdas are the easy ways to go forward because everybody has that pain of creating an anonymous inner class or go and create another class just for the command that you want to do because it's not anonymous because it needs to be shared over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of questions is I believe I've seen something where you can now register an existing method as a Lambda, and there's a shortcut for that. So if you had something there, you could kind of reference that as a Lambda and just pass the already predefined thing in? Yeah, so you have method references, which means that they're kind of, they're a little bit complicated to explain. I mean, they're kind of simple and complicated at the same time. This, I think, coming back to one of your earlier questions, method references was one of the first things I saw on slides of the new syntax and thought, oh, I I don't get that. I don't like it. I don't want to. (laughs) As a Java programmer, I was like, no, this is silly. And now method references, I think, are really, really awesome, where if you have a method that does the thing that you want the Lambda expression to do. So pretty much anything which is longer than one line of code for a Lambda expression, instead of passing the Lambda, you pass basically the name of the method as a syntax of like, you know, class name, colon, colon, method name. And so you can pass that method reference instead of a Lambda expression. And this weird colon, colon thing just kind of looks a bit odd and there's no brackets in there and it feels a little bit alien. But it's a really nice way of basically passing a label around to the piece of functionality that you want to pass around. So you kind of say, trying to think of an example. So there's a few methods on this class called objects. So there's um, a method called non-null. So you can use the method reference to non-null when you're doing filter, for example. So then your filter call has this nice descriptive thing inside. This is really difficult to explain by chatting. Um, The filter has, uh, instead of having a Lambda expression inside it, it just says filter objects non-null. So you're basically saying it's really descriptive. It says, I want everything that's not null. And so method references can be really nice, not only for eliminating long Lambda expressions, but they can be really nice for adding to the readability of, in particular, streams API calls. Other examples I've seen, if this is what I'm thinking, because there's, and you can help clarify, is that sounds like it's a reference on the object that's being passed into it. And so this would be something like you're filtering a list of integers and you're calling a method reference of is even as opposed to calling something that defines statically somewhere else. And then that becomes an argument. Whatever you're right. filtering so, becomes an argument to that other thing. It sounds like it's the... It does both. That's the interesting magic of method references. And I don't think I even realized this when I was starting to use them. Again, I think this is partly my fault for leaning on the IDE because the IDE said this Lambda can be a method reference. 
So I'm like, okay, you do that. And I, I missed the subtlety that sometimes the method reference is a method on the parameter of the lambda expression. So like you say, if you're passing in some integers, you know, int dot is even or whatever. And sometimes the method reference is a statically defined method or possibly inside the same class, a method which takes the lambda parameter as its type. So maybe you've defined your own is even method and that takes an int. And you could pass that in as a method reference to a method where the parameter of the lambda would be an int. This is really difficult to explain code when you're not writing code. <laughs> but anyway, there's, there's, there's like three, I think three different, three or four different types of method references. And it's, it all depends on, it can kind of magically work out depending on the types into the Lambda expression, which method reference it is. So that's one of those things that are kind of, you got to explain. There's potentially some magic on there that people might gloss over if they're trying to show this off and do some of the coworkers. The other thing around Lambdas is closures. Is this something that, people get that people understand because you kind of get the closures with the anonymous inner classes. What's the interaction between lambdas and the way they close over data? And what's the interaction there? And then what have you found people's ability to pick that up? And do they get that quickly? Or is that something that's still one of those that takes a while before it clicks generally? So in my experience with talking to people who I've given my presentations and workshops to, I've been surprised that people just seem to get that straight away. I think maybe it's something to do with the types of examples you use. But certainly when there was a lot of discussion about the Lambda expressions when they were creating the syntax and the, the Java language architects were discussing how to do this, there was a lot of talk obviously about closures, Lambdas, and how it closes over the data and so forth. And that was kind of a major te technicality. But I think when you're actually using them, I don't think it's as much, you don't seem to think about it as much. Maybe that's because a lot of people are using variables which are final anyway, and so they don't have to worry too much about the scope of the variables they're passing in. And maybe it's because Java 8 introduced effectively final. So if your variable is not changing, then you could put that into your Lambda expression and it's kind of fine about it. It just goes, oh, this is final. You don't have to worry about it. So I don't think there's too much reasoning about this variable is inside the Lambda expression. Where does it come from? Who owns it? And who's changing it? Because basically, you're not allowed to change it effectively. I guess that's the simple way of, of looking at it. And because my Java has been 15 plus years for the most part of my Java experience with a little bit sprinkled in here and there, the anonymous inner classes and inner classes, and even if they weren't anonymous, essentially get some closure of that data and they can reference the parent scoping object yes. as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can't get that from inside your, well, you can reference the parent stuff inside a Lambda expression, but you can't change it. And you can only reference it if it's final, which actually doesn't apply to fields. So it turns out there's a really, I'm going to use the word neat, but you could perhaps say nasty hack whereby you can pass in fields from your class and alter those inside your Lambdas. And then they're not, they're not final at all. So there's definitely some subtleties around it, but I think from a Java developer's point of view, the way that we should be thinking is anything that you're using inside your Lambda expression that comes from outside of the Lambda expression should not be altered and cannot be altered inside the Lambda expression. It's basically, you should be working with immutable stuff. And what else haven't we covered that are some of those selling points or things that you say are, we're not selling this as functional programming, we're selling this as these are things that are going to help us get better. 
Was there anything we haven't really discussed that makes it easy to go back and start doing this stuff on code bases that might be running on Java 8, but they're they're still essentially... They're not making the most of it. Yeah. Or there's still the Java 1.5 code base. We've just ported it to support Java 1.8 kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's I would say that's a good chunk of, of developers now. I've been impressed by the fact that when I go to conferences, and, and that's, a, that's a certain set of people already, but when I go to conferences, the audiences, the majority of the audience is on Java 8, which is surprising for Java shops. We tend to move much more slowly adopting a new version. But I would say that most of them are working with a Java 6, probably, code base that happens to be running on Java 8. So the code style is very Java 6. So there's a, quite a few things that I show those guys about what's amazing about Java 8. It's not just about, so we've talked about Lambda expressions. We've talked a bit about the Streams API, the Streams API being the sort of MapReduce type framework for collections. But collections also have the Collections API, which has been around since Java 1.2, 1.3 maybe. The Collections API has finally had a bit of a facelift and had a bunch more methods added to it. And this is actually because it's kind of, I guess, kind of technical, interesting, not interesting, if you like. Interfaces, you can now add methods onto interfaces and not break backwards compatibility because you can add default methods onto interfaces. I don't want to go into that in too much detail because I don't think, I don't think most everyday developers really will worry too much about that. But what it has meant is that old interfaces that we've coded to forever, like the collections API, can now have new methods without it breaking any compatibility. And those new methods include things like on map, there's a method called compute if absent, which I really, really love. And it it was one of these things that this was one of those light bulb moments where when I saw it, I was like, wow, that's amazing. It It takes away all of my boilerplate that I didn't know that I didn't like and just makes my code much simpler. And what this does is there's a common pattern, and you've probably seen this in .NET as well. There's a common pattern. You have a map. What you do is you have a new key value pair or a new key, let's say, that you need to create a value for. And you're going to query the map to see whether that key exists in the map. If it does, you get the value out, you do something to it. If it doesn't, you create the new value and you put it into the map. So you have this kind of set of code where you've got, you have to get something from the map and then you do a null check on that thing. And if it is null, then you create a new thing and then you put it in the map and then you close your if off and then you do the thing to the value. And that's like three or four lines of code. It's, it's not huge, but it's three or four lines of code that aren't really very important. And compute if absent is just a single method on map. And it takes the key and then you give it a Lambda expression or a method reference, which is the thing to do to create the value if the value doesn't exist. So it does all of that if checking, all of that putting it into the map and does it all in the collections API and you don't have to do it in your own code. And it's there's lots of little methods like that. So pretty much anywhere where they had null checks, any sort of if, any sort of similar looking boilerplate text that you had kicking around your code, just doing the same kind of things. Like there's also a remove if method on collections, which is really nice as well. It just condenses your code down to something much more simple and much more readable. So that's one of my favorite features. There's another thing which is kind of under, it's not really known very well, is that one of the few places we actually used anonymous inner classes or, um, yeah, anonymous inner types was for comparators. So if I want to sort by something and I have my own custom person, for example, I might provide a comparator which allows that to sort that person by age or by name or by something like that. And those comparators were kind of a bit silly that 
you basically override comparing and you have one of these things, let's say a person and another person, you do person one dot get age minus person two dot get age, and that returns an int and that allows you to sort by age basically. Now on comparator now, you don't you could use lambda expressions to simplify that, which is great, so that's a good step. But there's also new methods on comparator, like comparing int and comparing. And this takes a method reference of the method that you care about. So for example, you could say comparing int person colon colon get age. Instead of having to write this whole ceremony around having a comparator which overrides this method where you have this thing which takes this and it minuses this and it returns this value. So we have these new sort of helper methods. So they're, they're basically functions. We have these new functions on things like comparator to let us write the code we've been writing forever, the sort of simple boring code, like how to compare two objects in a much more simple and more readable way. And I love the new comparator stuff. I just think it's much more readable and much more understandable. And as you're describing some of those scenarios, it made me think of when I was first starting look at Ruby without really realizing functional programming as well, where they had the example of the file open, which took the block as the lambda and made sure that you close the file if there's an exception. You don't do it if the file didn't open and all that boilerplate. And one of the things I realized, at least in .NET, was the number of things where you have to try to do this thing. You could either use it. It's disposable. I think Java has the equivalent, like taking a connection from a database pool out and then putting it back. Have you noticed anything like that that comes along that people attack? Or Yeah. Some of that got better with Java 7. We got try with resources. So Java had a lot of ceremony around things like opening network connections, as you say, talking to databases, working with files. You have to create one of these stream reader thingies. You have to do, put a try-catch block around it, but not just the try-catch block. You also have to have a finally. You have to remember to close everything off and make sure everything is dead and gone. Otherwise, you end up with you know like loads of database connections or whatever. In Java 7, we got try with resources. So if you're reading a file or opening a connection to the database, you don't have to put the finally in there. It will just, you tell it which resource you want the JVM to manage, and it will take care of closing that stuff down. So that was better in Java 7. The Java 8 stuff has added a bunch more stuff for working with files. So suddenly, working with files was like one of the major pain points, in my opinion, with Java. In fact, it was one of the most common interview questions certainly in the London tech scene, is like, you know, just read stuff from a file, which you would think is kind of the simplest, basicest thing that we're supposed to be able to do. And there's a lot of ceremony. And now with Java 8, you can literally say files.lines. So this is like a static method. So it's a function and give it the path and it gives you a stream of lines. And then for every one of those lines, you can do something like filter out everything which looks like this and then map it into this. And then for everyone that's remaining, do this task. And it suddenly is using these functional styles, a combination of functions, of sort of this fluent API, MapReduce type way of working and passing in Lambda expressions and using method references to even shorten those Lambda expressions. Suddenly working with files is something which is readable and understandable and much easier to maintain and debug than it was in Java 7 or definitely in Java 6. And I didn't even realize that Java 8 came out with that features, but since it did, have you found that people start to grasp the examples like that where you're like, okay, well, now I need 
this stream, but that's uh, wrapped in this stream, which creates another stream. And now I can finally start to get the characters out into a character buffer in my file. And then I got to close those and make sure each one of those gets closed appropriately doing that transition. Have you noticed people like, oh, okay, I start to see these other places that lambdas can be applied. Yeah, definitely. It's certainly using the, I've got um, a files example in one of my live demos because it's the most sort of eye-opening one where people go, oh, I can literally just like apply a series of functions to each individual line and I, I get it. I kind of grok that. That makes sense to me. And they're not thinking in a functional style, but they think, well, yes, of course I want to apply a series of functions to each one. That makes sense to me. So as we start approaching the end of the episode, you've got an eye on Java 9. I know there's some other stuff out there. If you work at JetBrains, they have Kotlin. Mm -hmm. What is on your radar to make sure that you're staying up to date and looking at how some of these ideas come out if more and more functional features are coming in? Is there anything you're doing on the side? Is there any other resources that you're kind of keeping an eye on that says these lessons have been learned here? I can kind of jump on early and figure out how some of these other languages are doing it. Is there anything that you're doing with an eye towards the features that are coming that you can start to pre-research? Well, yes, of course, there's always loads of things. I, I would like to do way more with Kotlin. I'd actually like to write some fully featured Kotlin applications, but I don't have the time for that. So for, for Kotlin and for other languages to keep an eye on what they're doing, like I still keep an eye on Groovy and, and I skim occasionally the Scala stuff. I mostly just, I do this monthly newsletter for JetBrains and I kind of skim a bunch of articles to kind of figure out what trends are happening what seems to be current best practice in some of these other JVM languages. I skim various examples of, look, this is, you know, maybe a Java 8 way of doing this versus a Kotlin way of doing stuff. So I do, I read a bunch, but I, I mostly skim read it to sort of get a feel for the direction, if you like. And if people are interested, they can always sign up to my newsletter, which is the JetBrains Java Annotated Monthly, which is where I kind of distill what I've found most interesting about trends in largely the Java world, but also some of the other JVM languages. In terms of staying up to date with the Java way of doing things, then I like to practice stuff in, in hard mode. So I've signed up to give a live demo in Java 9 at QCon London in March and at DevOps US in March as well. I haven't written this live demo yet. I haven't written the application that the live demo will be based off. And it's all going to be Java 9. And Java 9 is not even out yet. It's not out till July. So I kind of have to use this new version of the language where there's not loads of resources on how things work and not so much information about best practice because people aren't using it yet. I'm going to kind of use it in a, in a real life application to sort of get a feel for what it feels like to kind of show people some of the nice features of Java 9, the same way I've been doing the nice features of Java 8. And this forces me to do a bunch of research around Java 9. So which features are going in, what's important, what's not, how have people made design decisions around these features? How are other people using it, if at all? So by signing up to give talks on these things, I really I do force myself to do sort of several weeks of intense immersion into these new things. And then hopefully I distill that into my particular preference is to distill it into something which normal everyday developers who are working on real code in real environments with real companies they can take something out of my talks and be like, okay, well, this new API looks like it will solve this particular problem. And I can see that this syntax is going to make my life easier in this way. And that way, they don't have to do the sort of three weeks of deep immersion in what Java 9 is and what it is not. 
And so as you do this and exactly with the point you were just made of you're distilling it so the rest of the world can come out no matter their level, no matter their experience and take this and apply this in their job. Do you have any tips for the people who are interested in functional programming but still working in Java or even just flat out people who have made the jump full time and suggestions on because you mentioned earlier in the episode that we kind of approach this backwards. Mm -hmm. Do you have a summary of tips and advice that say, if you want to make sure this is accessible, if you want to get these ideas out there, some of these are good ideas. We can all agree on that. And they aren't mutually exclusive. What are some of the things that you would say that we should be focusing on as a community if we're trying to build it and spread the ideas without seeming pushy or high and mighty or whatever it might come across of to someone who's saying, I'm just trying to get my job done. I do want to be the most efficient. I do want to do it the easiest way possible. How should we help start to approach that? So I've read Kathy Sierra's book, Making Users Badass. And I've read that like three times now. This is the way that I'm trying to approach my advocacy stuff, my teaching, my writing and my presentations. And her premise is, it's not important to your users how amazing your tool is, how amazing your language is. What's important to your users is that they become amazing and productive and good at what they do. So when you're telling them how to use your tool or your language or whatever it is that you're telling them, you need to be showing them how to solve their problems with your tool. So from a functional language point of view, you need to be showing developers, in my opinion, obviously, you need to be showing developers what problems these things solve. So why functional? What does it give you, this busy developer who has to fix a problem? Why would they choose a functional way of doing stuff? to fix this particular problem or what sorts of problems is functional a functional approach is really good for and that's what i found with the java 8 stuff is that when you show them look you know this kind of map reduce type thing that we get on the streams api this is really good for solving this particular small subset of problems and then developers are like oh right i can put that in my head as a tool that i can use under these particular circumstances i don't have to think about the whole like design ethos behind the streams API. I just see it as another tool I can use under these circumstances. And that sounds like great advice and great things to remember and probably just a good recommendation and reminder, even if we've already heard it before, because it's easy to lose sight on that sometimes when we get so wrapped up in the cool and neat features, regardless of the language that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we do get really excited about stuff and we do sometimes want to tell people everything about everything. But I think If you lead with, this is what this problem solves, you can go into more depth later on if you want to. Let's say you're writing a blog post or a talk, but you need to lead with, look, this is why. This is what you can fix with this particular thing. And you mentioned a couple of conferences you're going to be speaking at. You mentioned the newsletter that you put together for JetBrains. What are some of the other places that people can find you, follow you, upcoming appearances outside of those conferences if you've got some others that you haven't mentioned? I'm very active on Twitter. So I'm Trisha underscore G on Twitter, G-E-E, that is. And I used to blog a bunch of stuff at TrishaG.com, but mostly now I blog on the IntelliJ Idea blog and on the Upsource blog. So on the IntelliJ Idea blog, I do a bunch of stuff about Java and about Java 8 stuff. On the Upsource blog, I'm doing a bunch of stuff around clean code, what to look for in a code review, what sort of process might fit your team when you're doing code reviews in order to get good feedback. So that's kind of, those are my two personalities, really. One, the sort of technical Java side of stuff, and the other, like, how does a team get the most out of working together? 
in terms of conferences, I'm at, I think I'm at like seven conferences the first half of this year, possibly more. So I'm at QCon London, DevOps US, DevOps UK, Jay on the Beach in Malaga, JBCN conference in Barcelona, because I'm actually going to go to two conferences in Spain where I live this year, which like never happens. It's really cool. And then I'm at ProgsCon in London. I'm keynoting there about how to basically how to stay ahead of the curve as a developer. A full list of all of my appearances is on my blog somewhere, and um, I should be up to date. Okay, and we'll get some links to the conferences so people, if they're going, can find you or at least try and track down the videos and your blog and your Twitter feed for people to come back to the show notes and find out more. Sure, great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Tricia, for taking your time to join me today. It's nice to get that outside influence and get the refresher perspective of what it means to bring these ideas to people who aren't actively out seeking these ideas, aren't actively listening to podcasts, finding those blog posts, but just down in the day-to-day work and how we can help make sure these things are accessible. So thank you. And it sounds like you've got some other great resources that with your Java 8 stuff, if you're teaching these ideas that we can kind of see from others that are doing this, what's working in the community. So thanks for talking with me today and I'll make sure you get those resources so people can find out more and see how you're working to help spread the word in another way. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.